It's always a blessing to hear you guys up here singing. This is a blessing to me. Good morning. So in Sunday school with the teens, I've been doing Sunday school with the teens uh, for a while now, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so that was the book that was on my mind. Uh, and that's the book that we will be in. And the reason is Ecclesiastes has some of the most practical wisdom for all of life. And in my opinion, uh, Ecclesiastes has some of the best advice in all of the Bible for young people, especially. And we are just getting to the part in the Sunday school lesson where we are getting to that advice for young people. Now, the advice we're going to be looking at, the wisdom we're going to be looking at, is in the last 18 verses of Ecclesiastes. But Ecclesiastes is a book that's not often preached on. At least I haven't heard it preached on. Maybe you have. Um, and I want to give you a little bit of background. It's believed that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. In the book, the author only ever refers to himself as the preacher, but based on some information we can glean from within the book, our best candidate is Solomon. Uh, he identifies himself as a son of David, king in Israel, or uh, king in Jerusalem over all of Israel. And that's really important because only three kings can claim that. David, Solomon, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam. We also learn that the preacher has more wisdom than all who preceded him and has greater wealth than all who preceded him. And if you know anything about Solomon and his reign, that checks all of the boxes. So it's believed that this is Solomon at the end of his life reflecting on his life. And if you know anything about Solomon... The end of his life was not anywhere near as good as the beginning of his life because he fell away very hard into idolatry. And so Ecclesiastes, you can think of it kind of as a term paper. This is the last paper he's putting in for the class of life. Uh, this, this is his final reflections on life. And what I want you to get from this is the same exact conclusion that the preacher draws. Fear God and keep his commandments, because that is the whole duty of man. That is his conclusion. That is what I want to leave you with today. But I do want to fill you in on the rest of Ecclesiastes before we get to our passage. So we're going to start at the beginning. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 to 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we are introduced to our author, the preacher. Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? So what you have just been presented with is the argument of the book of Ecclesiastes. And the argument is this, in life under the sun, all is vanity. And for you to fully understand that argument, I have to inform you about two of those phrases. The first is under the sun. Sometimes it's listed as under heaven in the book. It occurs 28 times in 12 chapters. And you can think of under the sun as this present world. It, in the thought, God and heaven and all of those things would be above the sun. So when we cut the realm to just life under the sun, it's this present world. It is what you can experience and sense and see and hear and taste. 
and it starts when you're born and it ends when you die. And in this argument, there's nothing after that. So keep that in mind. He's, he's not arguing necessarily from a Christian perspective. He's arguing from a human perspective. The other phrase or the other word is vanity. This word vanity occurs 37 times in 12 chapters. It is one of the most used words in the entire book. And it conveys the idea of meaninglessness, of emptiness, of futility. Literally, the Hebrew word for vanity used here is the same word as breath. So to rephrase the argument, if this life is all there is, it is totally meaningless and it produces no purpose. It has no purpose. That is his argument. That is the research paper. And he puts in the research. He does his work. He does his due diligence in this study. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he pursues all kinds of worldly things. The first thing he pursues is wisdom. If this is Solomon, he's the best one for it. And this is wisdom literature. So he pursues wisdom to gain the most understanding, to gain the most knowledge, to be able to live your life the absolute best way possible. He also pursues pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2 is just chock full of his pursuits in pleasure. And to sum it up, uh, in Ecclesiastes 2.10, he tells us, all that his eyes desired, he did not refuse them. If he wanted it, he got it. And that spans from getting drunk, to having concubines, to having singers, to having slaves at your beck and call, to building great buildings and great parks, to having immense wealth. He pursues a life of pleasure. He also looks at work, the fruit of your labor. The idea that you are putting effort to produce, to produce, there we go, to produce something that you can enjoy later. And he looks at work from all kinds of angles, working just for yourself, just so that you have more, working so that you have more than somebody else, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. He also looks at work in working so that your children have a better life. And he also looks at laziness, the kind of opposite of work. So wisdom, pleasure, work. He looks at wealth. Just having gold and silver and the treasures of many provinces. He looks at power, political power. If this is Solomon, he is king. He has all of the political power, ruling power. And he looks at religion, man-made religion. The religion that says that if you do xyz correctly you are going to get little bartering chips that you can give to god and god is going to bless your life and make sure that your life is good and his conclusion as he as he's running through this maze called life and he pursues wisdom or pleasure or work or wealth or religion whatever it may be in this maze he always comes to a dead end his conclusion for all of these worldly pursuits is vanity, striving after wind. It's of no profit. It is a grievous or evil task. That's in Ecclesiastes 1, 2, 4, 5, 8. And my favorite way he describes this is literally striving after wind. The idea here is that the next time it is windy, 
you go outside and you try to grab it. That is the idea in striving after wind, that you are someone who is trying to grab the wind to hold it. If you went out there and did that, you would look foolish. Uh, you would look maybe a little crazy. And the person who goes and tries to grab the wind is a fool. And the argument here is that if you're trying to pursue anything else in your life other than God, if you're trying to have anything else be the center of your life other than God, you're foolish too. Because it's not going to provide you meaning. It's not going to provide you purpose. And he knows this because all throughout the book, he runs into these two problems. The first is that human beings are limited. We have limited energy. We have limited understanding. We have limited time. We can't know everything about God. We can't know everything about the past. We can't know everything about the present. We can't know anything about the future. He tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in our hearts and we can't understand it. In Ecclesiastes 8, 16 to 17, he tells us that we cannot understand all that is done under the sun. So the first problem he runs into is that we're limited. And the second problem he runs into is the main one, and it's that we die. And death is the problem he constantly runs into that makes life under the sun completely meaningless. We just went over Ecclesiastes 9 with the teens in Sunday school. That is the chapter where he deals with the inevitability of death and how it makes life meaningless if this is all there is. Because it doesn't matter if you lived righteously or wickedly, you die. The outcome is the same. It doesn't matter if you were the wealthiest man who ever lived or the poorest man who ever lived, you die and the outcome is the same. It doesn't matter if you were incredibly wise or a stumbling fool, you die and that is the same. All of your effort, all of your work, all of the decisions you make culminate in you dying. And when you die, that's it. In life under the sun, which is where his argument still stands. So this is the problem. This is what makes life meaningless if this life is all there has, is that there's nothing that you can do to get a different outcome than somebody else. You still die, you still get forgotten, and that is it. You are no longer involved in the realm of the living. But this problem doesn't stop the preacher from still giving wisdom. This is still wisdom literature. This is still Solomon talking to us, most likely. And so he does give wisdom for life. See, in the first four chapters, he pursues all of these worldly things. And then in the next four, he starts to give us some wisdom on how to live. Wisdom on how to act, wisdom on how to talk, wisdom on how to react, wisdom on how to plan, wisdom in your relationships, wisdom in your friendships. So he does give us wisdom on how to live, even though it's totally meaningless if this is all that there is. And he also finds some things that make life better. The first is contentment. Turn to Ecclesiastes 8.15. The first thing that he finds that makes life better is being content being content with the gift that the Lord has given. So Ecclesiastes 8, verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. 
And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. So the first thing that makes life better in his research is just being content with the gift of life that you have right now. Because as we saw in Sunday school in Ecclesiastes 9, uh, like a fish on a hook or a bird in a trap, and it's over, and you don't have it anymore. So enjoy it while you have it. The other thing that he finds is friendship makes life better. Turn to Ecclesiastes 4, and we're going to read verses 9 to 12. And this is the passage I always go to whenever the conversation of friendship shows up. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So having friendship, having relationships, having friends and people that you like and you get along with, that is something else that makes life better. But even though being content with life makes life better, and even though having friends and good relationships makes life better, neither of them provide purpose. They just make life better. And it is in our passage for today that we are going to get to, finally, the purpose. So we're going to start in Ecclesiastes 11, in verse 7. And a lot of what we're going to read is addressed to a particular group, young people. But don't worry, there's still advice if you are, not, if you are in the not young people category as well. So we're going to read, starting in verse 7, all the way to verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 11. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. And let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are Fleeting. Now, again, this concluding section, largely written to young people, but there is stuff in it for not young people as well. And if you remember, one of the things that the preacher found that makes life better is being content. And you see that all throughout these four verses. The light is pleasant, it is good to see the sun. If a man should live many years, rejoice in them all. Rejoice during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant. Remove grief and anger. Put away pain from your body. And so the first piece of advice that we see here is really simple. Enjoy life. Enjoy it. It is something that you have been given. It is a gift from the Lord. So enjoy it. And before we get into chapter 12, there are two things I want to look at in these four verses. The first is in verse 8. If a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all. For those of you who are in the not young category, are you rejoicing in today as much as you were in the days 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago? 
Because it does not say if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in the past. Or let him rejoice when he was young. It says let him rejoice in them all. Because today is as much of a gift as the day was 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. It is much a gift from God. It is a gift you receive from the Lord. It is not something you're owed. It is not something that you've earned. It is a gift that God has given you. And the Lord has seen fit to give you many years that, quite frankly, a lot of people will never get to see. And you may bring to mind some people that you know will never get to see the years that you have seen. So rejoice in them because every day is a gift. And that is true whether you're seven or whether you're 70. Rejoice. Rejoice in all your days. Rejoice in them all. And the second thing I want to look at probably caught your eye when we first read it and is in his advice to young people. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. That is in verse 9. That is his advice to young people. And if you're familiar with scripture, that sounds like the opposite of scripture. In fact, uh, just to give you an example, Numbers 15.39 reads this. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot. So Ecclesiastes 11.9, follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Numbers 15.39, do not follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Now, if you know anything about Christian teaching on the Bible, bibliology is what we would call it, you know that God's word cannot contradict itself. So what are we supposed to do with this passage? And the answer to that is actually found in verse 9, because it's the sentence that comes right after that. Follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes, yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things things. The preacher is not advising a life of just pleasure and sin and just throwing it all into an emotional turmoil. In fact, he has actively spoken against that many times in his book, spoken against sinning and doing evil and doing wickedness and living foolishly. So what he's encouraging is to know that God will bring you to judgment. Because the knowledge and reality that at some point you are going to stand before the creator of the universe and be judged for everything you've ever done and you're going to be judged perfectly and he is going to have all the time in the world to judge everything you've ever done should change how you behave here. When we are conscious of the final judgment of God, that should change how we want to live. And as a believer... This is doubly so, because as a believer in a mysterious and a majestic process, you are born again. You are regenerated, and along with that comes a change of wants. The things that you once wanted to do, now that you're a Christian, you no longer want to do. And the things that you wanted to do when you were an unbeliever, now no longer that appealing to you as a Christian. Your wants have changed, and because your wants changed, 
Your actions changed. And because your actions changed, you bear fruit. And the whole point of this change is to be like Jesus as a believer. Colossians 1, 1.28 tells us that the goal as a Christian is to be made complete in Christ. Romans 8.29 tells us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 tells us to attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So when he says, follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your mind, he is not saying just go sin, go have a ball. No, he's saying enjoy your life, but enjoy it wisely. Enjoy it correctly because there is judgment. And that is true for Christians and for unbelievers. A great way I can put this for young people, uh, imagine your parents, so you just turned 16, your parents get you a car. Awesome. You have your license, you can drive, you take it out for your first drive. Now, you can enjoy this car a lot of ways while you're driving it. You can slam the pedal to the floor and see how fast you can go. And then you can slam into a tree and see how fast you can stop. And what that is going to do is that is one way to enjoy your car. And then you don't get to enjoy your car anymore because you enjoyed it very foolishly. And now you have judgment because you're wrapped around a tree. And now you have a lot of problems. But you can take the same car and instead of putting the pedal to the floor, you can follow the rules of the road. And not only do you get to enjoy the freedom of a car, you get to keep enjoying the freedom of a car because you enjoyed it wisely. And that's the idea here. Young people and everyone else, enjoy your life, but enjoy it wisely because it will, you will be brought to judgment for everything you do. And it's important to do it while you're young. Now we're going to get into chapter 12 and we're going to read the first five verses. And if this hits a little too close to home, uh, for some of you who are in the not young category, it's because the preacher is very familiar with what he's about to be talking about. So chapter 12, verses one to five. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Remember, remember. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened, and clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, and mighty men stoop, and grinding, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, Men are afraid, afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caperberry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the streets. This is why we believe the preacher is not young, because he shows a very close familiarity with the effects of time on a human being. And he puts it very poetically. He puts it very beautifully. What he talks about here, and this is for you young people to realize this is what's coming. 
is a loss of sight, a loss of alertness, a loss of memory. It is a loss of teeth, a loss of hearing, a loss of energy, a loss of passion. It is a weakening of the arms. It is a weakening of the legs. It is a fear of falling. It is a fear of others because you realize you're not as capable to defend yourself as you once were. The effect of time on a human being is an increase in loss and weakness and fear. And for those of you in the not young category, I'm not saying you are all weak and scared. But you are probably not as confident, not as strong as you were when you were a young person. But young people are. Young people have the energy. Young people have the drive and the passion. So his advice is in verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before everything starts to slow down. Before everything starts to fall apart. And this word remember here, uh, to, give you an, to give you an example. Husbands, uh, think back, remember your first date with your wife and then double check with your wife to make sure you have the right date as the first date. So what you're doing right now is not what the preacher is advising. That you just think about something that happened and it was pleasant. It was a good time. That was nice. And then you think about the next thing. What the preacher is talking about here is husband. Now that you have remembered your first date and the good time it was and the fun that you had, that should encourage you and change your action so that you take your wife out on another date. It should change your action, that you were remembering the first date and how great it was, and now it's going to change your action and you're going to take her out on a date. By the way, not so subtly, take your wife out on a date if you haven't done that in a while. Uh, she is the love of your life and you are to love her as Christ loves the church. So if you haven't taken her out on a date and spent time alone together, this is God using me to tell you to go do that. Maybe after church. But that's the idea here with remembrance, is that you remember something, and instead of just going, oh, that was nice, it changes how you act. So when he says, remember your creator, he's not just saying, hey, pull up all the fun facts you know about God. No, he's saying, pull up all the fun facts you know about God so that your actions change. And remember your creator now, because as it says in verses 6 and verses 7 of chapter 12, Remember him before the silver cord is broken. Remember him before the golden bowl is crushed. Remember him before the pitcher by the well is shattered. Remember him before the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Remember him before the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. This is for everyone. While you still have life, remember him. Let your knowledge of the creator and of the coming judgment affect your actions now. Because at some point, you won't get another day. At some point, this gift of life ends. So it is important that you remember him now before it is too late. So remember your creator. Remember, all that you have is a gift from him, so use it for him. 
Live righteously. Live wisely for him. And more importantly, don't use it pursuing other things because he's already told us and he tells us again in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. The life you have now is wasted if your pursuit is not focused on God because everything else is vain. Everything else is vanity. It won't provide meaning. It won't provide purpose. If God is not in the center, it's all vanity. And if you notice, 12.8 is exactly the same as Ecclesiastes 1.2. That is because he has concluded his argument. His turn paper is up. And his argument stands that if God is not at the center, if this life is all there is, it is meaningless. But you'll notice Ecclesiastes 12 does not end at verse 8. There's verse 9 to 14. And that's the epilogue, which we are going to read now. Verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is... Fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So the preacher gives two parting words. The first is in verses 11 to 12. The words of wise men are like goads. For those of you who might not know what a goad is, uh, it's, a, it's basically an object you use to direct something else the way you want it to go. Most cases it's used with cattle, and in most cases it's pointy or zappy, and you use it, and now the animal goes the direction you want it to go. So for us as humans, wise words are the goads. They are the things that give us guidance on where to go. They help direct our life and push us in the direction wisdom would have us to go. And he also tells us, those who master collections of wise words are like well-driven nails. A well-driven nail holds something together and can hold weight because it's well-driven into a firm foundation. If you just slam a nail into a wall, all you've done is make a hole in your wall. But if you slam a nail into a stud, you have something that can hold things together. You have something that can bear weight. So Christian... Our collection of wise words is hopefully what you have sitting in your lap. It's this. And the goal, as you put God in the center of your pursuit of your life, and as you try to live life wisely, is that you master this book. But he does give us a warning that you can read in verse 12. But be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. There is, because human beings are incredibly sinful, there is a way to twist scripture reading so that your pursuit is for wisdom or your pursuit is driven by pride. So you can be the smartest guy at church, 
You can be the smartest guy at Sunday school. You can have all the answers, and it never goes from your head to your heart and from your heart to your hands. This is the same exact problem we see with the Pharisees when Jesus shows up, is that they had it all up here, and they didn't have it here, and they didn't have it here. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So we want to master God's word, but not so that we're the smartest guy in the room, not so that we just have a bunch of fun facts, but so that in reading it and mastering it, our lives change. The head knowledge gets to the heart, and from the heart it gets to the hands, and we bear fruit, and our actions change. And then the second piece of wisdom is the concluding statement. Fear God and keep his commandments. And I like the way the ESV has it better than the NASB. Because this is the whole duty of man, is how the English Standard Version puts it. This is the conclusion of the wisest man who ever lived, reviewing his entire life. His work, his relationships, all of the things that he has done, all of his experiences. And he has come to the conclusion that a life apart from God produces no meaning. And anyone who says otherwise is deluding themselves. God is the perfect judge, and he will judge everything you have ever done perfectly. And he will have all the time that he needs to go through every little thing. Now, for believers, this judgment is great. It is a judgment for reward. So what you have that is of silver and gold and it is precious will pass through the fire and you will get eternal rewards that you get to enjoy for all of eternity in heaven. And what doesn't pass through the fire, that which is hay and wood and straw and stubble, gets burned up. And so for you as a Christian, remember your creator, know that he will bring you to judgment for everything you do so that you produce more gold and silver and precious things that pass through the fire. So you stop giving up eternal rewards for temporary gain or temporary pleasure. Because that is what happens whenever we sin instead of following the wise words and allowing it to change our heart. We give up an eternal reward for a temporary advantage or a temporary gain or a temporary pleasure. And for unbelievers, if there are any here today, uh, this judgment is bad. You don't get judged for rewards. You get judged for punishment. And he is going to review your entire life, everything you've ever done, and he's going to judge you according to your works, and you're going to come up short because you are a sinner. And so if you want to fear God and keep his commandments because it is your duty and it is the duty of every man, the first step you can take is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That you, a sinner, because of your sin, because of you breaking God's laws, are an enemy of God and a criminal before God. And you are separated from God. And you cannot fix that on your own. Your works can't do it. But God loved you enough that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And his son, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, took your punishment on himself, shed his blood for you that you could have forgiveness of sins. And he was buried. And then he rose again on the third day, having victory over death, having victory over sin. And all you need to do, sinner, 
is recognize that you are a sinner in need of salvation and that Jesus Christ is the way that salvation is provided by God. And when you trust his person and his work on the cross as enough to forgive you of your sins and to save you from the wrath of God, you are saved and you are no longer an enemy of God. You are no longer a criminal before God, but you are now a child of God. And if you have questions or doubts or concerns about that, please don't leave here without talking to me or pastor or anyone you've seen on the stage today or the person next to you because it is incredibly important and you aren't guaranteed tomorrow to make that decision. So when all has been said and done, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. Enjoy the life God has given you. It is a gift from God. It can be very easy for Christians to fall into this kind of stuffy lifestyle where we don't really enjoy life as much as we should. Every day you have is a gift, so enjoy it. But enjoy it wisely. Enjoy it well. Remember your creator. Remember him. Know of the coming judgment. Master these wise words so that this knowledge and this remembrance changes your actions so that when you stand before the judge who is going to judge you for everything that you have ever done as a Christian, you stand before him and you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master and you will get to enjoy eternal rewards forever in heaven. So enjoy life, enjoy it wisely according to God's word. And remember your creator in all of your days, but especially young people in the days of your youth. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's very different from your other books. And I thank you that it deals honestly with the realities of life. And I thank you that someone else has pursued all that life has to offer for us so we don't have to wonder what's at the end of that corridor in this maze of life. We can know from the get-go that anything other than the pursuit of you and anything other than a life lived with you at the center is meaningless. And it does not produce purpose for us. I thank you that your word encourages us to enjoy life to enjoy all of the good things that you have given us, to enjoy this gift that you have given us every day that we call life. Help us to do that, to enjoy it to the fullest and to enjoy it wisely according to your word so that we may be more like your son, Jesus Christ, and we may pile up rewards for us in heaven that we may enjoy for all of eternity as our knowledge of you and our remembrance of you affects our heart and that affects our actions. Help us this week to enjoy life and to produce fruit. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.